Hello, everyone, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Watches His Dark Materials, Season 1, Episode 7, Mortal Kombat. Yeah. Actually, the title of the episode is, it's Mortal Kombat. I'm, we refuse <laughs> to acknowledge any other title yep. for this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Even the UK title of the chapter? No, we don't. Mm-hmm. HBO? HBO just got it wrong. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. So, I'm Eliana, one of your hosts. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit, or maybe you know me as the Arithmetric on Twitter. I'm Chloe, and I am another one of your hosts. You might know me from the internet as Liza Narber on Twitter, Tumblr, and LizaNarberGold.com, where I post new essays once in a while. We got an email and a tweet of note, and I'll come back to that tweet of note, but first the email that I cannot read, as I am yeah. unspoiled, but Chloe will read it aloud for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> we have to, like, proofread our emails. We really love your emails, you guys. Thank you so much. But please, continually realize that Eliana still has not finished La Belle Sauvage. So I am the spoiler checker in our email. I will check your emails I will make sure your messages do not have the spoils for Eliana since she just refuses to read. Chloe is the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realms of Eliana's eyes. Actually, though. (sighs) So we got an email from our friend Mary of House Richmond, who's emailed us a couple times before. And they said, hello, I just finished LaBelle Sauvage. It's my favorite Pullman book so far. I never would have read it had I not discovered your podcast, so thank you again. I am waiting anxiously for The Secret Commonwealth to be available at the library. I'm hoping I enjoy it as much. P.S. My demon would be my black lab, whose name is Turtle. Oh, Turtle. That's confusing. Turtle. Uh, Turtle Black Lab. I wonder if that's like, so the Dark Material podcast, um, and it's Dark Material podcast hosted by Ian and Amy. They, I think, are where I learned that apparently Pullman has said that demons are named by the parents' demons, which is interesting. So, like, were the parents' demons think both maybe turtles? And they're like, our kid is also going to be a turtle. And nope. <laughs> Mary, tell me about your parents. Are they both <laughs> turtles? Uh, they might be. They might be. Well, you do have a tweet of note that you're very proud of, so go ahead and be super proud, and I'll roll my eyes. Yeah, so everyone, I made a tweet at Philip Pullman. Uh, You might remember that last week I said that I was going to tweet at Philip Pullman and ask him his thoughts on the musical Cats, which is out this week. Uh, Actually, if you are listening to this episode, it may be in a theater near you at this very moment. I intend to go see it soon. I am incredibly excited. But let's talk about Philip Pullman. And so yeah, I asked him, I was like, Philip Pullman. I think my favorite part about your tweet to him is that you used one of your masterful Girls Gone Canon segues. You're like, you seem to love cats. (laughs) Does this mean you're going to love Cats the musical? That's actually what happened. Okay, so everyone, the tweet. At Philip Pullman, based on your chronicled love of cats, in parentheses, especially compared to dogs, through who has cats as demons, what are your thoughts on A, the musical Cats, and B, the upcoming movie adaptation of Cats? And Pullman responded with, I'm afraid I don't think about them at all. 
Absolutely, he loves cats. I mean, some of his most self-insert characters have cats, right? Farter Coram, uh, even Mel who has his cat. Wait, Al settles as a cat? Okay. Fuck, I'm sorry, fuck! <laughs> I thought that wasn't a spoiler! We're fuck, I forgot, he's young in the book you're reading. We're leaving, we're leaving it. It stays in. This is, this is a real, raw, candid reality TV moment. Everyone. Oh my god, a Girls Gone Canon reality show? Is that not what this is? Oh. When they Chloe and I are going we'll to do our fishing wilderness we'll show. Oh my god. So some people have animals that have settled as cats, and I will not <laughs> say again to you, Eliana, the people in hopes that you forget it. And maybe if you just fucking finish the book, I wouldn't have this problem. Maybe one day. I, I, I have a whole break ahead of me. And by that, I don't really. I do and I don't, you know. The world's my oyster the next few weeks. It could happen. I think that these books are ironically very good Christmas reading. In the way that Harry Potter is good Christmas reading, but this is actually about killing God and not about the birth of God. If you think about it, it's not good Christmas reading. I lied. I think it's a good subversion of the trope. That's true. Right? <laughs> and to be fair, that's the one thing you can get away with, right, on the holidays is like, oh, look at her. She's just reading. Good for her. Yeah, that's true. It makes you look really close. Not Chloe. Makes you look really cozy, but maybe it makes you look like Chloe. Imagining yeah, pretty little, much. Little Chloe reading. Absolutely. They watch sports. I sit there reading. They can't say crap about me reading because they're watching sports. I win. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, the episode... Last time on His Dark Materials, featuring a lightning round cameo. <laughs> yes, our very own lightning round between the episodes. Yeah, between the episodes, we actually got this commercial from HBO of this show that actually looks really good called Avenue 5. Maybe it doesn't look that good, but it's from apparently like the creators of Veep, and I loved Veep. And it has Jared from Silicon Valley. I was like, I'm in. Yeah, I don't, uh, I'm gonna be honest with you, I think I saw that preview. I don't remember it. It was brief. It was bright. Well, in the last time on His Dark Materials, we start off with Mrs. Coulter, who's flexing that she has Lord Azriel because of the bears. Bears. Boreal and Thomas and the other guy kinda harass Elaine. Stay away from her. Elaine shares John Perry's letters with Will. Lyra and the other kids break out from Bolvangar. They also blow it up. And finally, we arrive at Cliff Gasts and Cliff Hangers. What was your term? Cliff Hanger Gas? Cliff Hang. What a Cliff Gast Hanger. That was what a- it. Yeah. Yup, that was it. <laughs> Clever as ever. <laughs> Clever as ever. Tell me about Bolvangar. Mrs. Coulter is furious for obvious reasons. Bears are not the only thing boring this episode. Sister Clara is apparently still here. Apparently everyone else really likes her saying best place you could possibly be. And by that I mean the directors and writers because they make her repeat it constantly. So, yep. Sure was meaningful. (laughs) Mrs. Coulter scolds her saying they cut your demon out, not your brain. True. 
Yeah, but also, like, that's not how it's portrayed in the books. It's basically the same thing. Yeah, that's true, too. Sister Clara ends up being of no assistance to Mrs. Coulter, who goes full Shinji Akari at the end of Evangelion, and then apologizes profusely to Sister Clara. I outlined this episode, and Chloe doesn't know what to do with me. Sister Clara is like, I don't know where to go. And deep down, Mrs. Coulter's face kind of says, same. Yeah. In in a weird way, in a terrifying yeah. way. Yeah, there's definitely some similarities in the moments, and that kind of pity that Coulter rains down upon her when she looks at her, and that I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, and like trying to shake her back awake and alive. But God, the wide shot of Coulter right here, that slow horror zoom on her and the monkey, holy shit, phenomenal! Each week, there's a new shot that's mm. better than the last week. My boyfriend is a huge horror fan, and the whole time he was sitting there, and he's like, don't cop out, don't cop out, finish the shot, do that slow zoom, finish it, do it. And then they did, and he was just like, yes, under his breath. So I think that's how you know it was a good shot, technically speaking. Uh, they finished. Uh, he's a cinephile. He knows what he's about. I, uh, I do appreciate Ruth's acting in general. Just straight appreciation for Ruth in this, because... It mimics the demon very physically. It's incredibly clever. It's easy to see the evil in Mrs. Coulter kind of more than the vulnerable to most. And the vulnerability in the monkey kind of shows up in the show a little bit more than the anger, I feel like. We've mm. only seen the anger in a few hints. But her monkey is very much so an embodiment of her. And her crouching low on that desk and then here with Sister Clara is so telling. Even in normal moments, Coulter exudes just so much Coulter in the show. Just as the golden monkey with the luxurious fur. Uh, there's that passage in the books where she lets the children stroke her coat. And the way she uses just her charm, her voice so musical and her outfit so glamorous and just so warm and inviting. Um, it doesn't always come through here. Some of the adaptive choices of removing Coulter from capturing the kids might be part of that. Instead, having those lackeys with the foxes. But... When they do use the opportunity for Ruth and let her go wild, oh man, it's great. Uh, there's so many lines in the books that just come out here talking about the monkey, his fur is long and silky and of the most deep and lustrous gold, or about Coulter. She was beautiful and young, her sleek black hair framed her cheeks, and her demon was a golden monkey. And then, of course, the thought that Lyra has... The thought of that sweet face and gentle voice, the image of that golden playful monkey, was enough to melt her stomach and make her pale and nauseated. Yeah, Ruth is absolutely killing it. And they've just done a really good job of writing for her throughout the show, and really centering her and making her a sort of anchor throughout the first season. I also really agree on what you're saying about that first shot, that opening shot of Mrs. Coulter and that slow zoom in. There's a lot of really great shots and cinematography throughout this episode. Like you said, every week they kind of step it up. I didn't love some of the pacing. Um, a lot of the ideas make perfect sense to me. I think it was just the way that it was organized and cut together, maybe like obviously in post. I was like, interesting. Interesting cutting back and forth between things. And I get it. They're juggling like a lot of different pieces right now that are obviously all going to start coalescing next episode and that's very much what this episode is a setup for next um but i i appreciate what they're trying to do the this shot of mrs culture though actually reminds me a bit of that shot of lyra in the intro right as we zoom in on her 
centered in that frame in the darkness in her back. It's kind of like how in the intro, you zoom out of it, Lyra facing away, and then you come out of like a window and it's her back also. But here, that door is, of course, acting as the window in the darkness. And there's a lot of other great framing with windows throughout this episode, and we'll talk about them as they come up. Oh god, yeah, there's tons to talk about when it comes to windows. I didn't notice it so much until my second watch through, and it's just so obvious. Really good work. I'm always watching for the windows. Yeah. To the window. To the wall. To the intro on the show. It is straight fire. Oh my god. Off skeet skeet. (laughs) Off skeet skeet. I feel like we have to highlight this every week, because every week it's just better than it was before. I just love it. I just like, it's just more of a banger every time. And like, is it different this time? But it's not, but it feels different because it just feels new to me. Yeah, it's a straight banger. You know when Party in the USA came out? (laughs) Yeah, I remember. Yes, I remember when Party in the USA came out. (laughs) About 73 years ago when we were children. Oh my God. Uh, Best song of the decade or best song? No, it's not. Oh my God. Yeah, that's that's what I would equate this to. That good. Oh my god. That good of Somewhere. a masterpiece. Lauren, I hope you I've... never hear this. I'm oh so god. sorry. So somewhere on the ground below, Lyra is alive. Creepy noises are all about her. A bear that is so not Eoric finds her and takes her to Svelbard. For some reason, there's a scene of Lord Boreal that catches between the two, just out of nowhere. Um, I do love the shot of Boreal. It was a weird yeah. choice to have that flash of him stepping through the window in between this, but I think it's kind of a foreshadowing catch on the whole walking between worlds because Lyra very much so right now is passing into new territory, the world of the pants you're born. It's not really a separate world, but it pretty much feels like it. And in the next episode, mm. she's going to pass into a real other world, just like Boreal's doing. It just was weird yeah. because we spend all of like a minute in this scene cut to boil and you think that like oh part of it is they're building suspense for what the next thing is going to be but each one's kind of too short and you think that they're going to continue with one of the lines a little bit and they don't um ever yeah and i think they do a much better job of creating that sense of continuity and letting things build in some of the previous episodes so yeah they're kind of rushing to finish, I feel like, but they're not. Like they're they're adding things to do that. It's very interesting. I don't know. I don't know how I they're feel. They're just juggling. Yeah, they're juggling. Yeah. It's a lot. I get it. And I do love that when we zoom in on Lyra and she awakens from the snow pile, she's doing a mm-hmm. couple things that she does in the books. She pulled snow over mm-hmm. herself like a bear to sleep. That happens in the books. She wakes up with her eyes frozen shut. And that actually happens, I believe, post this episode this uh chapter, but that's okay. And then Lyra was asleep, Eliana. Yeah, she does the thing. We saw her asleep. This is what, the third time in the whole season? Fourth? No, there were there were a couple of other ones. But I mean, every single time is noteworthy because that tells me that we are being faithful to the book. <laughs> That's how I know. If Lyra's asleep, we're doing it. Canon. Yeah. We get to Svalbard, though. It is enormous and it's bloody. So you don't see the bird poop as much, but you see blood and they, they sort of gesture how terrible it is through that darkness and 
foreboding sense. Um, for the gates, Yofer also apparently takes architectural pointers from Scar of the Lion King. It feels a very elephant graveyard. The whole entire story is very Scar from Lion King. Ah, interesting. Now that you say Actually, it. Actually, yeah, you're right. Yofer's story is very Scar from Lion King. No king, no king. Ah. Um, it didn't have the kingdom of shit feel like the books gave it, right? But it worked. I liked it. It was marble. It was big. It worked. It worked. Yeah. I expected it to be shitty. It would be hard, I think, to portray. Would it? Shit all over it. Well, because the bird poop's gonna look white. How can you tell it's different from snow? Yeah, but bear's shit. You could put bear yeah. shit all over the castle. It's all you gotta but do. But they might just think it's weird rocks. And I think part of what makes it work is like, in, in you're hearing Lyra's thoughts of how smelly it is. It, it's different in that written medium. I mean... So I get it. She has a face. I, but like you said, it works. She has a face, Eliana. She can make a scrunched up face thinking it's gross and That's look true. at a pile of dung. That's true. They could have done it. They could have dung it. Give us give us the poop. <laughs> Jack Thorne. <laughs> give us poop. I feel like I'm starting to get a little ridiculous of my requests of Jack Thorne, but at That's the same true. time, are they that far-fetched? I don't know. In the dungeons, Lyra consults the alethiometer about where Yorick is. He's headed her way to rescue them. Look, I know that they're looking for shit for Pan to do, but his interactions are feeling so forced for me. Uh, he's still good. I like his voice actor. I, I was totally on the whole don't shit on them about the demons train, but there are moments that I totally forget demons are a thing or matter. That's true. I will I get, get that. I, I, I get it. I'm a, I'm a grown-up. I'm an adult. You know, my demon's settled. They're not that special mm -hmm. once they're settled. They're kind of annoying, honestly, if you ask my cats. But uh, I just, I don't know. I feel like maybe the pan stuff could be better. I know it's not intimate because yeah. they can't have it be intimate puppeteer-wise. It just doesn't work out easily. But it's a bummer. And it's, um, it seems like you're not the only one who has that criticism. I've seen a lot of the other writers on whatever sites i don't know i don't remember which ones i was reading but like every now and then a lot of them bring up that the demons don't seem to be as prominent and i think for them that's why they felt a lot of the moments in bulvanger didn't hit yeah it wasn't enough of a demon connection and or billy that and billy costa yeah, yeah. and it, it's not it's not entirely that I don't see enough demons. It's actually more of there aren't enough intimate moments with the demons, which I understand is a big constraint for them with filming and with production. Um, but it sucks because I would change the shots of everyone having a demon. I would switch that for having moments where Lyra's intimate with Pan, where like Roger and her on the airship on the balloon, when they were sitting on the balloon with Celcilla and Celcilia and Pan right there, and they're kind of curled up yeah. against them. That was nice. I felt more connected yeah. then. So shots like that, I do feel the connection. It's strong there, but sometimes it's just not strong enough to carry the entire show on it. Yeah, You know what I realized is a scene we did not get? Hmm. Lyra and Roger eating walrus. Yeah, because or of seal, the almondy hazelnut creamy taste. You and I are very fixated. We're like, we want to try the seal fat. Dude, when I learned that about it, I just, I know. mind blown. I didn't know it would taste good. I've still not tried it, obviously, but. I believe it. I believe in that bung. That seal bung. <laughs> the bung. <laughs> that's right. They didn't include the bung either. And that's the biggest problem with the show adaptation. Honestly, we've been robbed by Jack Thorne. <laughs> Give us the bung. I like Lyra that Lyra 
is talking to Pan about how she wishes she was a witch so she could fly to find Asriel. Um, I'm happy they kept this because this is something Lyra's consistently doing in the books, right? She's always like, if I were a witch, I'd cure my current problem by doing this. And she ends up using that phrase several times, even as late in life as The Secret Commonwealth, the most recent Book of Dust. I'm curious to see if they're going to adapt more of these books than what I expected. Maybe go as far to finish the Books of Dust on screen? I don't know. Um, just a They thought. could put like an epilogue or something, you know? Yeah, but these are like full-ass adventures, so I wouldn't be surprised. I just wouldn't be surprised. If they- did the whole thing. I don't know. Maybe they're going to gauge people. Maybe are into spinoffs. Who knows? Yeah. Lyra's room advisor didn't warn her. By the way, your dungeon comes with a roommate. It's a rude one. It's Jotham Centilia, who is the Regis Professor of Cosmology at the University of Gloucester. Gloucester? He says it on the show, and then I forgot his pronunciation. I'm so sorry, everyone. He laughs when he learns Lyra's last name. Because turns out her roommate is also great at info dumps. He's been here at this university, at this campus for a while. By that we mean prison. Asriel was here before and tricked Yofer to let him return to his lab. He tricked him to make him this nice-ass lab. Also, by the way, Yorick is in trouble because he's considered a bear trader and bears have flamethrowers. <laughs> he is a threat to the current king. Also, by the way, Yofer wants a demon. This guy's kind of useful. Yeah. He's useful in the books, too. Whatever. We have a brief cut to Yorick running, and then we come back, because Lyra now has hatched a plan, and then the scholar accuses her. Brilliant line. Love it. It's not in the books. Great addition. Just like your father, protecting your own skin, are you? Betraying your friend? I'd like that he was an info dump, at least in broad strokes. It was similar to what we get in the books. I like that he was included at all. You know, the one nice thing is, like, they're at least using some book names, even if they're not giving them all their due. They're giving them at least a little bit. Uh, This line, of course, is heavy. Other people don't know, but we all do. (sighs) Oh, that's right. We forgot to warn you all, uh, and you now know. We cover all the books in this podcast. (laughs) Spoilers all the things, even for me. Anything could happen to me. During this podcast. Yeah, I like how we're covering it now, not earlier, when I spoiled something from Bell Sausage to you. <laughs> I know. Bell Sausage, the beautiful sausage. <laughs> and of course, the betrayal that Jotham Centilia harkens to here, and you, as you say, we know what it means. Lyra's not doing it here to Yorick, but she does betray a friend twice. Right? Once, of course, being Roger, the other being Pan. And I do wonder who Jotham Centilia means that Asriel betrayed, or if he's just, like, saying shit to troll Lyra. And I mean, technically, Asriel probably betrays everyone, but there's a part of me that kind of wonders, like, what if Jotham Centilia means himself in the show? In the books, he was supposed to, like, teach at Barry University. Like, literally, this was this is not a joke where I'm riffing off the roommate thing. Literally, he was invited up here by Yofer to teach at the Barry University. But then he ended up being defamed by the Palmerian professor. And Jotham Centilia, both in the books and the show, is a professor of cosmology, which is the study of, like, the origins and evolution of the universe. And this this goes back 
uh, there, there's a study of it in the mythical way and studying different legends of how the universe came to be. But there's also physical, like physics, scientific cosmology and coming at it from the astronomical point of view. And it, it, it's interesting because I assume in Lyra's universe, right, these two are combined as people, you know, they talk about science as experimental theology. So it would make sense for him to be up north, maybe even with Azrael as studying the dust in multiverse and how all these things came to be. I made a backstory for him that was clearly no one thought about this, I think, in depth in the show. But I've decided this is this is a canon in my head now. I think that works. I mean, it's as good as anyone else is at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or he could be up here for Barry University, too. It's still possible. It wouldn't surprise me if he was on his way to help Asriel and Coulter knew this, maybe, from some sort of connection, and convinced Eofer to get him, hold him, I don't know, trick him into coming to Bear College. Truly, Bear College is really... Bear... Bear College. <laughs> Bears. Bears. Well, we go back to our world where Boreal is watching videos of the sexy fleabag priest, aka that's John Perry, Joe Parry, about the letters again. So he knows there are letters. Aha. I get it. That's the whole reason we're watching this. But, you know, they could have shown me a new video of John Perry. Come on now. I agree. Damn. I I was like, I don't know. But I agree. As a content creator, you have to use every square inch of content you have. I get it, John Perry. I get it. Yeah. But I mean, like, maybe, maybe other people wanted to interview him, too. Or maybe only one person ever wanted to interview him. That's why. He wasn't, like, that big, you know? He wasn't Shackleton, 11 greatest Britons <laughs> to have ever lived. Will says that, though. There were no books with his dad in them. Um, that's something from that first chapter with Will that we get. Will says, there's mm -hmm. no books, there's no history, there are no photos of my father doing magical, crazy things. Like, how do I know he was some great man? How do you know? He's Sean but Perry. I <laughs> how do you know he's gone? But... I, do you think part of it, like, this makes sense for our day and age, yeah. right? For Will to be like, I couldn't find any books on it. Yeah, well, you didn't have the fucking internet, and now everything lives forever <laughs> on there. Again, though, uh, coming back to what you were saying the, earlier about framing and windows, we've been talking about throughout the season uh, how Boreal has been shown through a bunch of windows and framed through them for so much of the season, which makes sense. He's the one that we see going through a window between worlds. Here in the car as he's watching videos, we see him behind a window and there's a reflection of tree branches above his face. And we talked a little in previous episodes about him, his snake demon, right? And here I, I like to interpret him as the serpent in the tree, this time he is longing for the knowledge that is forbidden to him in the letters. I don't think you're wrong on that. Knowledge is power. Power is power. So more Svalbard. Oh Lyra walks in front of the stop. bears to Eofer, and the lighting is super moody, though Eliana's convinced it's daylight outside during this. There's like some windows, and it makes me think that it's daylight outside. Okay. They just... They're just really goth. I mean, who um, knows how time works out there? Literally, it's just snow and snow sure. and snow. Oh, you're right. Sometimes it could be daytime all the time up in the north. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the bears are goth. Where is Cynthia? A really cool dancer. Cynthia. No, but really, where was the Coulter doll? Where was she? Like, yeah, it's creepy. Maybe it didn't translate story-wise, but where is it? 
I mean, I get it. You're right. It probably doesn't translate story-wise, and that's why we noticed it so much in the movie. Yeah. But it's just like, I deserve it. You know, everything from the books. I deserve every part of these books on a screen, like, adapted. So right now, it kind of feels like Jack Thorne is taking something I deserve away from me. Where Cynthia? Isn't that an episode? That's an episode of Rugrats, right? Yeah, I think we lose Where Cynthia. Where looking for look, looking for Cynthia. Cynthia, she's a really cool dancer. Lyra then tells Yofer that she's Yorick's demon because bears get humans as demons. Duh, keep up, makes sense. She's also is like I'm like a witch's demon and can travel, and then she pins Yorick getting a demon on Mrs. Coulter, and. Yofer's like, demons for bears? Salami for cats? Oh my god. The same joke was made in my household as the episode aired. Actually, though, I'm so. I didn't even know I was so connected. <sighs> she I'm tells Yofer that she can be his demon if he defeats Yorick in single mortal combat. Mortal combat, the title of this episode. Finish him. So in this scene, it's interesting that she's embodying a demon, which the Magisterium, who is got Eofer in cahoots with them for power, is trying to separate people from their demons to eliminate dust mm. in the world. It's this blatant political irony of the people preaching God is good, murdering the kids, and Eofer is obviously not a righteous king. Like, this is so known from this scene. That's all she needed to know about his character. Lyra proves she's a demon, though, by revealing to Yofer while on one knee. I beg your pardon, Yofer Rackneson. I didn't know you were so great and powerful. The first creature you killed was your own father. I think you're a new god. Only a god would have the strength and power to do such a thing. Which is actually very similar to the line that she delivers to Yofer in the books when she reveals this. In our reread, we talk a lot more in depth about this and about Yofer killing his father. Because the show doesn't provide the entire like backstory and context, uh, where Yofer had killed his father unknowingly. He had come across him alone as a young ice bear and didn't know it was his father. And they quarreled, and he killed him, and uh, because you know he was brought up only by the she bear, his mother, and so he concealed the truth of what he had done because obviously now he's a huge hypocrite because he's king because Yor killed another bear, and it's probably way worse killing your own dad. <laughs> anyway probably probably and in our book episode we talk a lot more about like the parallels between this and the story of oedipus only there's like a lot less incest in this because this is a children's book series but this line about him killing his father and it making him a new god that only a god would have the strength and power to do such a thing is very interesting in the context of a story that's all about religion and you know god but because Azrael doesn't do this, right? Well, as far as we know, Azrael has not killed his father. Throwing it out there. He never plays the role of God and never really aspires to. But he does take on this role of Lucifer in this retelling of Paradise Lost, the fallen angel rising in rebellion. And the one in the story who does kill God, though, who, in, as many of you may know, God is often referred to as the father, right? Lyra is the one who kills God. So I kind of wonder, does that mean Lyra's something like a new god? And interestingly, she doesn't do it through 
strength and power in the same way that the bears exuded and use it against one another. She's strong, as we know, because you don't go on this entire like multiverse journey and through the underworld and do a bunch of crazy shit if you aren't like of strong will of some sort. She's powerful, but in different ways, right? As you're saying, knowledge is power. But she kills God not through that, but through an act of compassion and gentleness. She sees this like frail creature inside of the crystal ball and she's like, I'm gonna free it. And I think that's a perfect response to a regime that is built on exerting strength and power to subjugate others. Yeah, she truly inspires people, and those people that she inspires, she inspires them to be better, and that's what kills God, truly. Yes, there are specific instances that also lead to it, but her power comes from the goodness of her heart, right? The conversations Mm -hmm. with Lee and Serafina have illustrated this so well so far. Lyra takes detours to free suffering dead, stuck in the underworld, even though there are a hundred other routes she could take. She refuses to leave Roger in the underworld. She has to undo her betrayal. She faces the harpies, which are these seemingly awful creatures, with grace, composure, and empathy overall, and she finds a common ground with them. She seeks redemption and atonement when she actually sins, whether it's an accidental sin like Roger or not, and she brings back dust, which is... What makes the planet go round, we learn, right? She brings it back through love and compassion for a fellow human, whether the Magisterium finds it sinful or not. Yeah, she's a good girl. Yep. Yeah, she hugs the harpy, even though he's got, like, crazy eye boogies. <laughs> That's literally how they're described. Yeah. She tells Mrs. She tells Yofer that, hey, Mrs. Coulter has deceived everyone, and I'm sure I'm not the first one to say this. And obviously the book does it too, but the show is really, really hamming it up. Doing it even more so of how bad Mrs. Coulter is. They're playing her out to be like the big bad guy in evil because obviously they're going to like bait and switch it for Asriel. Like, wow, surprise! He was the bad guy all along! Yeah, absolutely. We see it a lot with Sister Clara in this episode too, right? Like that was a little unnecessary. That was something I felt about that opening scene. Now that I say it, it was an intense scene. It was great. It was fine, but it was a little weird. It was a little intense, right? Yeah, it was weird. Obviously, yes, it's for the bait and switch with Asriel, but I'm seeing so much at play with Coulter rebelling from the Magisterium in the next season and her, you know, saying, no, fuck you. I do what I want because she's playing a lot of her cards here in this episode especially she's kind of like last chancing with the magisterium they're kind of telling her you have to go and bring Azriel back or else it's over for you marisa and uh i just can't wait to see the flip when she's drugging lyra in the cave and when they can't decide if she's pure evil or psychotic the audience right like it's psychotic probably but i digress a lot of people have been saying she's like an iconic character, which which yeah. she is. She's, and part of it is, of course, Ruth's performance, doing a great job, just like Lyra doing a great job of inceptioning Yofer about Mortal Kombat and convinces him to let her go to Yorick. She's like, I gotta trick him. Let me prove my love. Weird, strange vibes. I don't get it. I mean, I get it, but I also am like, it's like a Coulter parallel thing. And honestly, she is owning the silver tongue in this episode for sure. She is. Well earned. I like that they kept a lot of the stuff from the books as far as how she tricks him. I mean, it all felt in the same vein, even if it wasn't a one, two, three, here's the step by step of how it happens. 
Yeah. And Daphne delivers it really well also. Yeah, absolutely. She, she kills it. She does all of this entire scene, I think, really well. Especially when you think about the fact that she's not really acting against a bear, right? Yeah. Completely not. So, <laughs> later at Will's house, Boreal trespasses into the household under the guise of needing to give Elaine information about her husband. We then briefly cut to Will at his locker for no apparent reason. No reason. None. He's at school. Yeah, I guess it's just established Will is not at home. Okay. Which I guess makes sense. Um, we spoke before in a bunch of earlier episodes from this season about the inspiration of M.C. Escher, the artist, in the intro. And, of course, Tana sent us that really great email pointing out the unique architecture of the Perry household. But it strikes me now, like, in this episode watching as Lord Boreal goes up the steps leading into the Perry, to the Perry door, that visually their steps also very much resemble that M.C. Escher-esque uh, portrayal oh. in the intro. That's a really good catch. I didn't notice that, and now I see it. Yeah. It's just like these nice visual cues that hold the show together. Yeah. And it's really modern, right? So Lyra's world mm -hmm. has that steampunk quality about it. You're not really sure what year you're in, but Will's world has smartphones and the even just the architecture is sharp and modern and new and fresh. Uh, but a lot of those stairs and cutouts and just step-ups kind of look like that to me. Very, very slick. Yeah. John Perry providing. Yeah, absolutely. With his stylistic choices. Yeah. Interior designer, Joe Parry. <laughs> I mean, he seems like quite the kind of guy who'd have a bunch of different interests and talents. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, if these walls could talk, but it's like if these windows were closed. Yes. And he can't get back, and he's a shaman. He's, you know, anyways, so that's the next book. What a shaman that he wasn't... <sighs> So Boreal is making small talk, and then he starts to spin some lies about John being entangled in something bad. He tells Elaine they could find him alive, but they need the letters. Speaking of the cinematography and the visuals again, I'm a little bit confused about the cinematography here, because every now and then, you know, we see the conversation from the foyer, and I understand how they're laid out in the living room. I write... The camera does a good job of establishing where they are in that room. But then we go out into the foyer and look at them through the door in the living room, right? And I think this comes back to what Tana was saying of it's a strange house and they're using this very interestingly and intentionally. But at one point, Elaine is in front of the larger couch. And then we see like in this small picture frame... A reflection of Boreal sitting down, and that cues the audience to understand that the next time we see Lord Boreal, he's going to be sitting down, right? And that part, I understand why that's happening. But what I don't understand is how can Lord Boreal's reflection be in the picture frame from outside of the room because he should be behind on the other side of that wall because he's in the same room as Elaine. And it's not a window, it's a it's a picture, it's an artwork or something. And I guess the cinematographer saw it looked cool, and we're like, we'll do this, even though it doesn't make sense, because no one was going to actually think about it except for me. But 
So when Boreal and Elaine are standing opposite of the glass door before he forces himself into the house, I noticed a couple things that might add to this. He opens the door to come in and walks through that glass door, and it looks very much so like walking through the window. But the way that the camera follows him on a technical note is really impressive in this shot because there's no evidence of a camera in the huh. frame whatsoever and there are things like uh the matrix for example there's that famous shot where the door handle you can kind of see if you look really hard the camera and the door handle in that shot uh but this they cut it just right the transition is just right that you don't see a single camera and i'm wondering in that painting uh in that frame that you're talking about if it's a similar thing but not uh, if, if they had done it any other way in that room, and I think because of these angles, they have very limited ways to actually film in this set, in this house. So I wonder almost if they have to angle that way, and that was the only shot they really had. I think they could have just showed him like sitting down from within the room, which is why I think that they chose this because it looked cool. And I think that's a great note that the camera's not in the frame with those, because yeah, there's a lot of reflective services surfaces so that is very skilled and they've thought these things through in a lot of ways because as this scene ends right boreal when he's exiting he closes this glass door behind him and then we see elaine again through that door frame but then because of the glass there it ends up with us again looking at her she becomes the one behind the window now she's screaming into her pillow and it's another way that we feel removed from these characters but shows like all of these different spaces and that maybe there are different worlds between all of us deep down inside <laughs> speaking of different worlds inside people elaine tries to kick boreal out but boreal threatens to take will from her and we have this great line of, I'm frightened of everything, being frightened of you is just one more thing. I love her. I am so, you know, that is the one thing I can comment on, is that zero points for Ma Costa, but at least two points for Elaine. They at least characterized yeah. her. Like, I can't be mad at what they've done for Elaine and at least giving her a part and not having her be some random bystander we saw for a flash. Um, yeah, they've given Elaine agency. A lot of agency in Elaine's story, and a story that previously had, like, none. So I can't yeah. be mad at that at all. Um, in fact, you could be glad of it. I am glad of it. And <laughs> this is such an intense, I mean, very, very intense scene, right? Because in the frustration, Elaine sees his demon, and he immediately tries to gaslight her and fails at it because she saw it. She knows what she saw. And he says he's going to leave and return with paperwork instead. Yeah, and by paperwork, he means fists. Well, but yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I like how she tries to get him to tell what agency he's in. Because, like, Elaine knows her stuff, Yeah, right? She's not stupid. God. The way that he walks in, too, against her consent, like, she says no. It feels wrong. It feels like a violation of her privacy. And the way he's standing in that casual way, he's like, where's your lounge at? You can feel that. His words say something, but the smile doesn't reach his eyes. And it's just like, heebie-jeebies. Yeah, because he's used to exerting power over others. We see him do it with... The reporter. The reporter with Fa, Fra Pavel. Yep. Right, that was Pavel, right? Intimidation. Fra Pavel, intimidation, blackmail. He's in a position of power in the Magisterium, and he might not have any actual power in this world, 
at this moment, right? We see that he establishes himself um, when he meets Lyra in book two. But, you know, like, he's just used to it. He knows how to act as a person who has power. He's like, whatever. Yeah, he's used to having authority and control. And it really shows. Exactly, the authority. The authority's on his side. He is part of the authority. Mm-hmm. But then he doesn't get what he wants here. So he goes back to at the car. That's how I've titled this. Thomas and the other guy ask how it went. He gives silence. And they're like, oh, okay, so it didn't go well. And there's another great line. Boyle says, do you ever think people just don't understand what's good for them? Oh, that's such a good line. Ugh. It's It completely embodies the paternalism that he and mrs coulter have been like exerting over others or what the magisterium thinks that they're doing that they get to decide what's good for others yeah it's the removal of free will yeah and i'm not saying like free will because i wish everyone would free will free will free will um oh my god that's all i want is a picture of his face on a shirt now that just says free will oh i thought you were gonna say on the whale nope like free willy so we have another guest in this episode. Yorick is here. Uh, Lyra finally goes out to meet him. It flashes over and she gives him a pep talk. Yes. She goes, show him he's nothing. We thought that we were. He, she was lying to Yofer about that in the previous episode, uh, in the, in the what is it called, previews. But turns out, no, she was really just showing it to Yorick and she really meant it. I felt so proud. When it was actually her saying it to Yorick, I was like, thank God that they lied to me in that preview. Yeah, I I do like, they have done a good job of keeping me on my toes about what I'm going to see each episode. Obviously, we have an idea of some things, right? But So then it comes to Mortal Kombat. Yofer acts like he invited Yorick, and then he shit talks him. This Coca-Cola commercial is extremely violent. Um, none of us wanted the Klondike bar this bad. Chloe's about to fire me at any moment. And I'm just saying, i that's the quote that Lyra said in this moment. She says, I did not want the Klondike bar! As she rushes to Yorick's side, and Yofa realizes that this whole time he's been tricked. You're not a demon. He's about to attack Lyra, but Yorick is like, absolutely not. And then off screen, off screen... He kills him. It's all behind Lyra. And I'm like, fascinating. I thought this was going to be more violent. TV 14. Yeah, BBC. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I felt the TV 14 hard in this scene. That is absolutely the first thing I noticed. We'll talk about that in a second. After uh, they get their Klondike bars, because what would they do for a Klondike bar? Well, kill Yofer off screen. <laughs> a coup! <laughs> Lyra tends to Yorick's wounds. She says that they tricked a bear. Yorick is like, he wasn't a bear. Also, Lyra's now one of them because she's given a brand new name from Yorick. Lyra Silvertongue. Aww. Aww. The thing. So, before I get too upset, there were a few things about this scene that didn't really do it for me. Which is a bummer. It didn't make me mad. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed in them. You know, uh, there was an interview that came out from EW with Joe Tanberg, the voice actor for Yorick, who also does a bit of the puppeteer stand-in work for him as well. 
The question asked was, did you ever have conversations with the writers or producers about what it means for these characters to be fighting each other without armor, which is so significant to them? And Joe answers, and I'm going to be honest, this is painting it with my feelings, but feels like a cop-out answer, and here's why. He says, it's a question I knew fans would ask. It's tricky. You have to put yourself in because you want to showcase one thing, but the fans of the books have seen something else. We talked about the importance of this fight. One thing is Yorick shows up in his armor. If it wasn't for Lyra's deception and trickery, he would have been torn apart even with his armor. For Yofer, who's king to take off his armor and challenge Yorick, is almost religious. We want him to be as animalistic as they are, part of their nature. They're warriors, and you can imagine Vikings or Samoan warriors or Maori warriors in a- Maori. Maori, sorry, thank you. Or Maori warriors in a fight to the death. You'd imagine it being man-on-man, and you'd have little protection and very little weapons. Okay, so in this same exact answer, it went from, we knew this was a question that was going to be asked. Really, it's more meaningful without armor, because these are bears. It's part of their nature, and it's almost like they're human warriors, and they're like humans, and man-to-man. You gotta pick one. You can't answer this with four different things. They're not those kind of warriors. They're bears. They're bears, Eliana. The whole emphasis on armored bears being nothing without their armor. Like, Hester literally just said, a bear's nothing without their armor to Lee when she was introduced. No armor, no jaw. I'm over it. I'm over it. I agree. I mean, first of all, like, we just established this is TV-14. Why are they fighting naked? Okay, that's, like, inappropriate. But also... (laughs) You're welcome. Also, I mean, I agree, like, they're nothing without their armor, it's their souls. We talked a few episodes about how bears make their souls, they make it as they grow up, and again, it's their souls, like, for them to be fighting with their armor, and as Yorick tears the armor off of Yofer, it's significant, it shows that, you know, this thing that you've built up your entire life to protect you, and that is your soul, doesn't stand up to snuff, it's absolutely part of their culture in as you said, their bareness, their their specific kind of bareness as Panzerbjorn. Yeah, it's completely frustrating because in this same interview, he said, well, this is like a cultural thing for them, even though he just said out loud that their culture is established, that this is important to them. <laughs> yeah. it, it's just sloppy. It's just be honest about it. You know, that's what I want. Yeah. Obviously, he can't say certain things. Let's be real. No offense to you, Joe Tanberg. You're a real G. You're doing great. But... But not as good as me as Yorick. Yeah, that's true. Eliana is the best Yorick. I'm going to let you finish, Joe Tanberg. But Eliana was the best Yorick of all time. Roar. And Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. But it, it's just obvious that there were other reasons, right? Like, it was a production thing. We already know that it's hard to capture these creatures, including Yorick. And he takes up a lot of screen space and time and money. And armor might not have been something palpable during this fight for two bears in one scene. This episode had to be freaking pricey. In fact, I don't know how much it cost to make this episode, but it had to be pricey. There's bears everywhere, dude. You know what did give us armored bear fighting? The golden compass. The golden compass, (laughs) yes. Chris White wins again. Actually, though. There are a handful of things Chris White did better. I'm just putting that out there. And worse. And as we said, a lot of the directorial choices are the same in in this series. So, interesting. We're back at school. Yes. Not Bear University, like school in our world. 
<laughs> not bear college. Not bear college. Will's like, Mom, you need to stop doing this. You need to stop showing up here. And Elaine ends up sounding crazy talking to him about men coming to her house with snacks and that people think his father is still alive and was like, hold up. This is a lot. <laughs> but wait, no, sorry. I know you wanted to digest all that, but we are back to Svalbard again. And Yorick <laughs> is giving a speech about being bears and not humans. I hope you heard that, Joe Tanberg. To your interview, Yorick himself says that they're bears and not humans. Just putting it out there. So Lyra reunites with Roger, who is hiding out in the rocks. They hug like two toasted marshmallows, one about to be more toasted than the other in one episode. Oh and Yorick asks if Lee is safe. Lyra checks, and he is. He is. Then they ask about the Magisterium. Turns out the Magisterium is trying to head to Svalbard with Mrs. Coulter. Lyra then decides that Lord Azrael really needs to get Lethiometer because, in quotes, we need the truth to defeat oh. her, meaning Mrs. Coulter. And then Roger says that they are both coming too. And I'm like, mm, but what if you stayed home? Yeah, you could have some tea. You could uh, curl up. Maybe Yorick and you could read a book. I don't know, Roger. It's an idea. They could, yeah, he could curl up and cuddle Yorick and eat seal fat. We These are ideas. We move to the Magisterium. They tell us Eofer is dead and Azriel has been free, so they're all heading north. Things we already know, Magisterium needs to keep up. Lots of little fluff scenes to get us to the end of this episode. Just putting that out there. Yeah, then we get to the northern airbase, where Mrs. Coulter and Father McPhail have a very tense and very, very close conversation. He tells her that you failed, that he needs to go get Azriel now, because guess what? Yofer is dead. Again, we know. Mrs. Coulter then gets very, very in his face. I don't like when people do this. What if her breasts smell bad? Anyways, and says that she knows Asriel the best of anyone, so they need her. And then McPhail says, Romeo must Oh my die. god, you're fired. What is that? Also, I beg to differ. I think Thorold probably knows him a little better. That's true. So, whatever. Maybe, I was going to say even Stelmaria. Stelmaria probably but knows him. I guess him, she doesn't you count. Because... She's his soul. Uh, yeah, she doesn't count. Never mind. This scene's fine. Whatever. It was showing what was happening in the background that we didn't actually get to see in the books. It does give her a purpose to really go after Asriel. And I do like that, like I said earlier, she's specifically playing the last cards she has here. It's building up that rebellion. It's building up that bomb to go off uh, really well. Yeah. And earlier, she didn't really succeed in, I guess, being very close to Father McPhail's face. But here, it seems like she's whittling him down a little i guess i don't know there is obviously some tension between the two of them anyway we're back to will's house thomas and the other guy broke in as they were searching for the letters when will and his mother returned the place is a mess and will drags her past the lake that we first saw him walk by when we first saw will a few episodes ago elaine pleased with will to believe her and he's like i believe you then he takes her to the house of his boxing coach, Mr. Hanway, to stay for a bit while he sorts things out um, and cleans up their home. They embrace very fiercely. It's a beautiful scene. And then they part. Also, Chloe was right. Bada boom, snitches! <sighs> she yeah, called I was it. right. I she know. She felt it. I did call it. Uh, yeah. Felt a little empty for Mr. Hanway. It was like, okay, I get it. Whatever. That was the person Will trusted and he left his mom there. Um, but the look Mr. Hanway gave him absolutely was a knowing like i know you're not coming back any day soon kid yeah, he's like, i got some pajamas uh, 
Yeah. And it reminds me of this line from Will's very first chapter. From the moment in the supermarket when he had realized he must pretend in order not to worry his mother, part of Will's mind was always alert to her anxieties. He loved her so much he would have died to protect her. Mm. Mm, my good boy. Well, <sighs> yeah, so. Really I wonder well. if there's any sort of like double entendre of Will telling Mr. Henry, you said your door is always open and needed to be open right now. Oh yeah, door being yeah. open. Again, okay. the worlds, the people, love. Just say words and maybe they'll all come together and you can all understand what I'm trying to say. You're doing great. Somewhere in the north, in Lyra's world, we're all over the place this episode, Leah's rummaging through the balloon, which is grounded. He's humming the song and Hester's like, I don't like that song anymore. He's like, well, I need to sing, okay? And Serafina then appears. She offers help with the balloon and emotionally. By the way, York is king again. Lee whoops. She gives him back his gun. Yeehaw! She gives him back his gun and Lee catches the hint. He's going to need to keep fighting because Lyra needs all of us. So something I found today interesting on Reddit was that someone pointed out Serafina's tattoo is in the same fern pattern as Lichtenberg figures, which are branching electric discharges that sometimes appear on the surface or interior of insulating materials. You know, like skin when you get hit by lightning and your vessels burst, for example. They're named after German physicist George Christoph Lichtenberg, who originally discovered and studied electrical charges. He was an experimental physician, interestingly enough. Hmm. One of the first scientists of his time to introduce experiments with apparatus. He was friends with Kant and Goethe. Lightning really actually kind of works for Serafina in resembling that traditional symbolism of sudden illumination and destruction of ignorance. It's uh, also something that represents punishment of humans mm. by the gods in the skies, with I, which I feel really works with witches, even though it's mainly attributed to Zeus. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's some really great um, symbolism read right into there. And I mean, like, also, it makes sense if it isn't a tattoo and she just got hit by lightning. I mean, to be honest, if you are flying in the skies, uh, you're the highest object out there, right? Like, it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, good thing I'm not in the sky, because I would always be the highest object. It'd be very dangerous. In the sky. Yeah, only in the sky. Yep. Ever. ever. <sighs> yeah, so fun fact. Look it up. Lichtenberg. Check that crap out. See the pretty fern scar thing. Probably sucked. Probably felt like crap. But, you know, see yeah. it. Looks very similar. There's a couple of really good ones in Google Images. Yeah. Anyways, I just came here to talk about something actually serious next, which is Lee and Serafina. Many people have tweeted at us about Lee and Serafina this week. I'm glad they've all come to the light. They are all my tiny little bugs who are going to get squashed by the subtle knife. But that's okay. That is fine. That is what you're here for. So I wanted to share some of the ship names we're getting from people online. Uh, Lo Jacko Mirror said... Finley, Le Fine, that's a great mm -hmm. ship name. Mm -hmm. um, Reds said, finally. That's my favorite. F-I-N-A-L-E-E. -E. I like that one. That's my favorite. Our friend Fat Walda said, Sara Lee, which is a good one. We had Lyra Fina from Compod. Uh, a couple of my favorite ones, though. I did like Scores Beckela <laughs> from Laura Silvertongue, but Shadowblade217 just took the cake. They win. They win this uh, mini competition I made up right now. And they said, I would vote for Sarah Lee, Peckaby, or Arrow oh Witch. 
I love Arrow Witch. It's very cute. And Peckabee. Peckabee's cute. Peckabee is cute. Sounds like a Pokemon. I just want to say... My favorite Pokemon. I'm really proud of you. I think Chloe's been, like, really disciplined this episode. She held back until... To talk about this, until this moment. She even started this section off, right? The section where we talk about Serafina and Lee meeting with, like, a different thing entirely. Even though... I know... She Thank wants you. to scream about this, so I'm proud of you. I mean, look, I've already accepted my doom of my beautiful ship, and I've already written all the meta behind why I ship it. So I'm good. I'm free, you know? Like, I'm ready to just cry on the screen. Oh my god. <laughs> That's the end of the season. Yep. Not, Can't wait. Can't season. wait till the end Sorry, of season two. Later. Yeah, season one. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of emotional scenes, we have an emotional scene now of Lyra and Roger riding on Yorick. There's like, I don't know, slow-mo and music. Those are the best. Like, I could forget about any of the bad things that I've been upset about. I could watch this on a loop of Yorick and them just riding off. That's all I need. Yeah. We jump over to Will once more. He returns to his house. He finds that the letters are still there and safe. And then we jump back to the north, where the northern lights are above Asriel's isolated lab. Coulter is walking dramatically through Magisterium Military. I love that the Northern Lights have really been consistently hanging over this story this season. Uh, that's how it should be, right? Should be hanging over us. It's literally and the name of the is, book. Yeah, the Northern Lights, the Aurora. The Aurora. Uh, yes, and then I, after we go, Will to the north. We come back to Will right now. He's about to read his father's letters when, lo and behold, Thomas and the other guy, I refuse to learn his name, return. And then as Thomas is climbing the stairs, Will starts wrapping his hands the way one does when they're about to put on boxing gloves. And then he he comes for Thomas. He wails. I think he misses a little. (laughs) But then the most important part of the entire episode. Yes, the most important. The star. Uh, The star of the show. Truly stole the show. And usually I'm talking about other cat demons, like the one I spoiled earlier, or Farter Corum's demon, Sofanax, but truly, Elaine's demon, which I think is canon, so I'm just gonna say it, stole the show. Thomas just fucking falls over, and it was the best death. It was probably my favorite thing ever. I cheered, I chanted, I was so happy that Thomas died, because fuck that guy. You're out there like, I kinda like him as a villain, and I'm like, no, fuck that guy. He was evil. He was a bad guy. He's wor- just as bad as Boreal. Bad. He is bad. I actually did feel kind of satisfied with his death. I was like, all right. I feel closure. Yeah, I felt great. And we literally were chanting murder cat, murder cat in our household during this. And by we, I mean me. My boyfriend was sitting next to me going, don't give the cats ideas. <laughs> but he did. He was like, Allie is getting ideas. Uh, but it, I love in the books when this all goes down, you can see the panic with Will. He takes off, he makes a break for it, and he's freaking out because this dude just laid there motionless, dead. Uh, and he realizes it in the books, and you see that dread in the show on him. The man was dead. He killed him. He couldn't get it out of his mind, but he had to. There was quite enough to think about. His mother, would she be safe where she was? Mrs. Cooper wouldn't tell, would she? Even if Will didn't turn up as he'd said he would, because he couldn't now that he killed someone. And Moxie! Who'd feed Moxie? Would Moxie worry about where they were? Would she try to follow them? Moxie's gonna... So as you can see, Moxie is the important character here. Yeah, I mean, Moxie's just gonna fucking eat Thomas. Don't worry about it. Yorick would approve. And (laughs) uh, also, I love that Moxie is 
Kajava foreshadowing yeah, here. Yeah, absolutely. Would she try to follow them? Aw. I, I also, I also, I wasn't chanting it. I just screamed, Moxie the murder cat! In that moment. I was so proud. I was like, this is it. And I knew, I knew you were chanting or yelling it also, wherever you were. <laughs> but, yeah. This was, I'm glad that they included this and they very much played it out similar to the books. More satisfying, as you said, because mm-hmm. uh, apparently it turns out deep down I did want Thomas to die. I didn't know that I did. Yeah. And I was really worried that Will was going to read the letters before mm-hmm. they showed up because it, it was all calm and he was sitting there and I was like, no, 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 no. It's so important to me that that waits until season two or until, you know, the finale where they finish the third season like next week. Yeah. And <laughs> but no, I was happy like they didn't taint that yeah. for me because I feel like Will trusting Lyra with them if she wants to is so much more important. Almost all the Will scenes have been pretty much gold. Yeah, very much so uh, clean, and they're honoring them, which I'm happy about. I also like the way they play this out of Will and Elaine just missing each other through Mr. Hanley's windows. Mm. As Will Mm -hmm. decides not to return, Elaine leaves just, just a breath before Will shows up in the window. And I think it's such a great example, again, of that visual framing that we've been talking about throughout this episode, again, with those windows where they're separated by the windows. They're separated and in these two worlds, as Will and Lyra will be one day. And mm. also, Excuse me. Yeah. Rude. But also Will through these windows, everyone being seen through windows right now. It's The visuals are cluing us in for what to expect in the fam- finale. Yeah, absolutely. And even with that aurora showing, the aurora above, I mean, it's time. It's coming. Speaking of that aurora in Lord Asriel's lab, Yorick tells the kids to be safe as he drops them off at the pool. The two children hug ferociously. Roger tries to tell Lyra that he's there for her. Thorold lets them in, amazed and bewildered that Lyra somehow came that far north. He takes Roger away first. Asriel sees Lyra. He drops the papers and tries to kick her out with his classic line of I did not send for you. But before he can, Stelmaria points out Roger is there. Yeah, Asriel's like way too jazzed in this moment. It's like very nice to Roger, which is very different from how they acted towards each other before. He's like, wow, who are you? And Roger's like, I'm the kitchen boy. But also in my mind, I'm like, Roger's like, we fucking met. We yelled each other at each other. The end of the first episode, everyone talked about it. It was all over Twitter. And how could you forget me? It was really rude. How dare you, Azriel? Yeah, I, I don't know. Azriel just kind of... He's obviously not the kind of person to remember. I get it. Yeah. I get it. No, and oh no, I'm not really criticizing anything you're saying. It's just more like, I can't make myself care about Asriel. That's fair. I mean, I'm still giving it room for us to for it to change based on the portrayal, but like... I don't know, La Belle Sauvage didn't convince me in the books about the character in general. Uh, and that, I feel like, was supposed to be as more redemptive. Not redemptive, but uh, it was supposed to show a little bit of redeeming factors about Asriel. And it was 
okay, I guess. The main trilogy didn't convince me. Professor Xavier here on the show isn't really convincing me. No one's just convinced me about Asriel as a character. Not Farter Coram, not Malcolm Polstead, not the witches, not not God. No one. None of these motherfuckers have done it, Eliana. I think the only thing that has convinced me about Asriel is as I think about him in the context of the Egyptians and compare him to what Mrs. Coulter has been doing to the Egyptians. And that's the only thing. Yeah. Kind of, but then there's the part of me that, like, everything in La Belle Sauvage about, especially about Asriel's treatment of the Egyptians and how he's, you know, a big advocate for these people and the fact that, I mean, you, you've obviously read far enough that we talked about this in our very first episode where I talked about, you know, how he basically gives j- No, I have not gotten there. God damn it. I must have missed it. He basically says, like, take care of these people. Just take care of them. So, like, they can eat for free or go places, do things, and they have friends and family in the area, and, like, it's good. But Roger is technically Alice's cousin. So if Azrael was nice towards Alice and nice toward Malcolm, and now he's just straight up Stannising Alice's cousin, it's just kind of like... Yeah. I feel a little... I don't know. Uh, it doesn't... To me, it doesn't feel like his Egyptian stuff can blot out any of this like the, the way he looks is and i mean i'm not saying anything about the show portrayal no it was fine it's whatever but the way he's supposed to look here is like hungered and crazy you know like he's supposed to have a look in his eye a glint like ha, 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 the thing i've been missing for my secret experiments and i don't know anyone watching this that hasn't read the books i'm so curious as to what the fuck they're thinking right now because if you don't know it's kind of like it's obvious something's gonna happen yeah. And it's obvious that it won't happen to Lyra. Yeah. And I think that the show frames it there. And I do think that James McAvoy nailed that look. Yeah. You know. He did fine. It's just the character yeah. itself. Yeah. And not inspiring. I do think that's something that Pullman actually was intentionally writing. And maybe he was trying to like rectify that a little in Lavelle Sauvage. I don't know. But seeing like, you know, that again. Uh, Again, that difference between like tragedy and comedy, that distance, right? And mm -hmm. because we're so close to Roger, that's why we're we're never able to forgive Azriel that one thing, yet so many people find mm -hmm. Mrs. Coulter to be a compelling character when she's done this over and over again, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I'm that person. It, it, it's just an interesting it's just <laughs> interesting like that this is something that he's playing with in that storytelling. Yeah. It's fun. I don't know. I just think like if either of my parents, even the one I don't really know, like the sperm donor one, like if they tried to kill my best friend, I just don't. I don't know. Don't know. Slash did. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's a lot to think about. It is a lot to think about. That's why Pullman wrote it. Um. Well, I hope no one is in the same situation yeah. because that would just be terrible. Yeah. I think we know what's going to happen next week, right? Without even looking at the previews. <gasps> yeah. Betrayal. Betrayal. Actually, that literally is the title. I know. I think that's the oh. one thing that they did for Wait, us. Wait, is that the title of the episode? Oh, yeah. Wow. Amazing. It's for us. You mean they didn't call it Mortal Kombat Part 2 with a K this time? Uh, actually, that's next episode. Mm -hmm. And then we get episode I 9, see. which is covering all of the third book, The Amber mm -hmm. Spyglass. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So... So you guys can tune in in the next <laughs> couple weeks to hear that. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm excited for next week's episode. It they this episode was 
a lot of just setting up for next week. Yeah, it was. And I hope they nail it out of the park next week. Yeah. Um, the visuals alone are going to be really exciting to see the uh, Northern Lights just at their peak to see Sitagaze. Yes. Finally see it. We've got, I'm excited about we've that. We've gotten like glimpses of it, but like for that curtain to tear. And again, like as I as I said, I, I still think personally that the last scene is going to be Lyra and Will each individually stepping into the world of Sitagaze, but from different points. Well, you know what they say, you never bet against your partner, and I think you might be onto something there. Yeah. Except I bet against your ass all the That's time. That's true. I was so. like, we have different chips, you know? But I don't care about mine that much. Yeah, well, you know, when there's good ones. Wow. I'm just kidding. I love your ships. Anyways, so you guys, thank you so much for tuning in. It was a pleasure to have you this week. <laughs> you just uh, fucking thank you for it. listening to Mortal Kombat. I love this episode, Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat. His Dark Materials. <laughs> the uh, global name of both the chapter and the episode. <laughs> of course, keep uh, up with us. You can find us on social media where, you know, every now and then, Philip Pullman may or may not respond to us. You know, you can find us at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter. Or maybe you have an email for us that may or may not have spoilers. At, shoot it to us at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, absolutely. And I can read it to Eliana and spoil her on air. <laughs> this is real life, real television. <laughs> it's the real world. TV. Yeah. It's not just a podcast. It's reality TV. Wow. You guys, if you haven't already, please subscribe to us so you can get the latest updates of when episodes come out on any of the platforms we're available on, such as Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Acast, you name it. We're on a bunch of them. And of course, we're on Podbean, which is where we host all these episodes. Somewhere else we also host episodes is on Patreon, where we have patron-exclusive episodes. Last month was about our Song of Ice and Fire read-through, which, as many of you may or may not know, we do. We do it by each character POV. Right now we're still finishing up John. And this month's Patreon episode is going to be about the lantern slides that are at the end of each of the three main books. Yeah, I'm excited about lantern slides. I think there's a lot to dive into that will, of course, be encompassing spoilers from all three books. And so you guys know, we will be releasing an episode sometime next week for the finale. It might be delayed by a day or two of your usual release. And we will not have a Jon Snow and a Song of Ice and Fire chapter coming out next week on the 27th for the public or on the 3rd for the public. Had a solid year and run and we are doing a lot of things. And of course, we are going to start up with the Subtle Knife at some point in 2020, early in probably in the first month. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, we'll have some updates on that over on our social media or on Patreon, or stay subscribed for those updates. So thanks a lot, everyone. Can't wait for the last episode. I've been one of your hosts, Eliana. And I've been another one of your hosts, Chloe. See you next week, Bye -bye. guys.